Chapter 20 of A Column of Dust by Evelyn Underhill. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Chapter 20 How Constance Kept Christmas. Êtes-vous couvert de blessures mortelles que l'amour vous embrasse et vous voilà sauvé? Be you covered with mortal wounds. Love will kiss you and you will be saved. On Christmas Eve, Constance returned late from the bookshop to find Mrs. Reed sitting before the fire with Vera rolled in blankets in her arms. Helen said, I came in after supper to see whether you would want me at the shop tomorrow morning. Mr. Lambton had not decided when I left. The child was awake. I heard her crying, so I could not help going in to see whether there was anything I could do. Sometimes, you know, a little drink of water will send them off to sleep. But she seemed so restless that at last I got her up and stayed a little while to comfort her. Constance unpinned her hat, took off the cheap fur and ready-made coat of grey tweed, went to the mirror and patted her hair into place. Half-past ten, she said. What a day! I'm sorry you have to wait so long. No, we need not go tomorrow. All the arrears are cleared off at last. I've been doing up parcels ever since we closed. You're free till Monday now. Let me take Vera back to bed. You must be tired out. She's far too heavy to nurse for more than a few minutes at a time. I don't think she's very well. Constance parted the blankets and looked at the child more carefully. Vera slept with her head sunk forward, her mouth open. Her face had an odd and waxen pallor. There were brownish shadows under her eyes. Every now and then she gasped for breath, and curious twitchings ran along her limbs. At once the watcher stirred eagerly and whispered, The child is very sick. Perhaps she will die, and then you will be free to live. Helen said, Let me keep the little thing for the present. I'm not overtired. She's sleeping now. She likes the warmth. If we move her... She may wake again. She replaced the blanket with infinite gentleness, brooding over her burden with that profound and impersonal love which comes naturally to those who have been disciplined in the service of the weak. She looked, in spite of her uncomfortable attitude, utterly contented and utterly at rest. Constance felt herself cast out from the magic ring which was made easily and naturally as Giotto's circle by the women's arms about the suffering child. She, the mother whose sublime opportunity was here, knelt at Helen's side, agitated and helpless, confused and horrible emotions, hopes, fancies, fears, chased each other through her mind. I'm glad that I came tonight, said Helen. It's so terrible to be alone when anything one loves is ill. You will let me stay now, won't you? You may want some help later on. Oh, oh, I can't do that. It may mean sitting up all night with her. And you've had a hard day. You need rest, Helen answered. Rest? Why, I have had nothing real to do since October. And I like it. I like to feel that I am useful. It takes the loneliness away. I can do something, perhaps, to ease the child a little. You see, I'm used to nursing. I shall know exactly what to do. They are much the same, old men and little children. 
please let me stay. I'm so fond of little girls. Towards midnight, Vera left her sleep and broke into bitter moanings. There was no longer any doubt as to the grave nature of her malady. As Christmas bells began, Constance made up the fire, set about the heating of blankets, the boiling of water, and entered upon a night of struggle and suspense. Helen had gone out in search of a doctor. She was alone with the three mighty forces which disputed dominion over her life. There was first the hidden cup. It reigned in its austere silence, sequestered from the troubled plain of human endeavor, surveying it. It gave her no help. Contrasted with the actual griefs, the harsh problems of life and death which she felt clamorous about her, it seemed unreal, an incredible thing. There was the child in her arms, appealing at this moment to all that she had of responsibility and protectiveness, of simple, natural love. There was the watcher in her mind, vividly conscious of an approaching crisis. He sought, it was clear, to govern her weakness, to save her from the worst consequences of ideals which he found quixotic, even insane. His attitude was marked by an affectionate vigilance. He was like a kindly guardian, determined on the social salvation of some young, bewildered creature, who is ready, in spite of prudent counsels, to sacrifice his happiness to some wild notion of honor or truth. All his supersensual powers of discernment concentrated now upon her service. He perceived in Vera the one tangible obstacle to that full and pleasant life which she desired and he would help her to attain. He saw her chance at hand, his chance to act for her, to straighten the tangle of her life, that incomprehensible past which militated, as it seemed, in this mad world, against all pleasurable intercourse, could be shut down, annihilated by the friendly hand of death. The child was desperately ill. The watcher, for whom physical symptoms had no meaning, yet discerned unerringly the loosening of the ties which bound her little spirit to the dust. As a life, she was without value, ugly, evil, an abortive thing. He felt that it was reasonable, clearly implicit in the will, that the imperfect should be swept from this teeming world in order that the perfect might have air and food and space. The watcher was unaware of any reason why the principles of natural selection should be applied in the jungle, but neglected in the home. Eye to eye with him, Constance saw it too. Her freedom, the disappearance of many embarrassments, social and financial, of the dreary and difficult future from which there was no other escape. Then the emergence of new opportunities, a fresh lease of that life, those chances of free action which she loved. She saw the kaleidoscope abruptly shaken and new and glittering pictures made with this one bit of ugly glass eliminated from the scheme. Then she realized with horror the prospect which she had been contemplating so calmly, the prospect of her own child's death. 
she could not help but contemplate its possibility, for the watcher, with authority, held this picture perpetually before her mind. He said to her, Why be disturbed? All is well. Death is acting in your interest. You do not love this child. No, she replied. No, I don't. But I want to. If only I could. Then, since you do not love, where is your reason for clutching? Why keep and cherish that which you do not even need? In this, you are more foolish than your fellow creatures. Surely it were best to let her go. I cannot. You do not understand. Death is the one thing in which we may never acquiesce. We are bound to fight it, keep it at bay. Human life is sacred. How absurd your illusions are, said the watcher. Human life? What do you mean by life? The crawling dust? Is this sacred? If you mean the spirit which it imprisons, that cannot die. It can only emigrate. And what is the difference between one side of the veil and the other? They are both in the idea. She answered, Perhaps that may be true. I do not know. But I must go on, must keep her as long as I can. She is a bit of my life, my bit of life. Given into my care, I, I've got to save her. I know it is unreasonable, but I must. Even as a life, she is not worth saving. She is twisted, imperfect. She will never grow, never be beautiful, never transmit the idea. It was true. She knew it. Where, then, he said, is the value of this distorted thing, of its little scamper through the dream? It must have a value somehow, somewhere. Each of us counts. How convinced you are of your importance! Yet each one of you, at a touch and incident, may crumble to the dust, and another soul will come, snatch your dust for its clothing, linger a little while, and then away. This is your destiny. So why not accelerate the process? Help the will. Imperfect, misbegotten things embarrass life. Confuse it. Surely it were best to expel them from the dream. She answered, Perhaps, but I, I can't have a hand in it. I must not interfere. I may bring forth but I dare not undertake to destroy, to permit a destruction that I can by any possibility prevent. That is beyond my province and life's. We can only hand on. He disdained to answer her. His will, as she felt, was already active in this matter. Even whilst he disputed with her, he was pressing the child's spirit from existence, forcing it, as it were, into the shadowy dimension beyond the confines of the dream. It came to this. If she were passive, Vera would die. She had but to acquiesce, and the issue was already decided. If she would save her, it could only be at the sword's point, all her will, all her strength, infecting that little feeble body and fighting in it and for it against the oblique charity of her friend. She was appalled by the strength which he brought to bear on her defences. At his coming 
he had desired nothing but an extension of his own powers, an appeasement of his own curiosity. These she could meet on their own level, combat if she chose. Then, vaguely, he had shifted his center of interest. Her comfort, her joy, had been objects at least of sympathy, if not of care. These he had discussed, desired, but could hardly influence. Now, suddenly, he saw action ahead of him. He intended a definite outcome of the situation in which they were placed. And she was face to face with the strength of an immortal spirit which has at last found something to serve and to love. He said to her incessantly, Leave it to me. Let me have my way. Be passive, and I will direct your life. Let the child die. Let her be pressed from the dream. She impedes you. It is better that she should go. Then you will be free to make links with the other little creatures, to reconstruct existence as you choose. This also, in the light of the idea, is but foolishness. Nevertheless, since it is that which you have chosen, you shall have it. But you must, you shall, be thorough, fulfill the essentials of your dream. She listened, bewildered. Vera moved, sobbed, whispered a little, Tanta, I'm very badly hurt in my inside. She turned to the child, seeking vainly and desperately to mitigate her pain. She wanted to do it and had to, and the human act of ministration at once drove the inhuman influence away. Vera's mouth was drawn down in the sad grimace of anguish. She whimpered feebly each time that she tried to breathe. Her knees were drawn up under her flannelette nightgown, making queer angles beneath its shabby folds. It was disease in its most macabre, least lovely aspect, violently intrusive, deliberately grotesque. There was nothing poetic, nothing to relieve the ugliness of this ill-staged encounter with death. But Constance perceived no squalor in the picture. She was concentrated upon the duel which she was so suddenly compelled to fight. She forgot the intense fatigue of a body which had been employed in arduous labor for many hours now, forgot the hesitations and confusions of a spirit which was called to save at all costs, the one impediment to its own liberty and ease. She was there, confronted by a human need, and she met it. Strength arose in her. She knew not whence to fight for this dreadful little life. As she worked, the inward voice spoke words of encouragement. She hardly heard them, as soldiers in the ecstasy of battle are unconscious of the commands which they obey. But in the midst of her labors, the wringing out of fomentations, the arranging of pillows to keep the weight of blankets from Vera's tortured little frame. She became aware, presently, of a change in the room, in the air of it. These determined acts of menial service had, as it seemed, introduced her automatically to a new dimension, where she found her senses to be adjusted to the rhythm of a more extended life. On this suddenly revealed plane of being, all the old objects of her perception had their place, but they were no longer quite natural, quite earthly. The walls and furniture, the hasty litter of bath and kettle, 
towels, pillows, rugs, the fire which burned like an ardent vision in the unsubstantial grate, were thin, strange, and shadowy, yet the life which they decked seemed profoundly, amazingly real. As once before in the adventure of the tree, she had penetrated appearance, and stood suddenly surrounded by truths. These truths, she observed, were sparsely distributed. They were four in number, herself and Vera, the Watcher and the Grail. These things hung, actual, in the abyss of being. They were at once veiled and supported by the webby matter of the dream, which shook and trembled incessantly about them. The misty earth, the papery houses, the shrine and the hearth, these were there only that they might demonstrate or conceal the thing which mattered, the choice which she must now make, the adjustment of her soul, her immortal reality, to the three companions who went with her on this way. Suddenly the will of the watcher was upon her again fiercely. He put the thing before her with remorseless logic, saying, Since appearance, movement, change, the life and death of the body are but illusion, why fight to avert the meaningless but inevitable sequence of things? Check this absurd impulse whilst yet there is time. Let be. Do not take sides. Do not trouble. Can you not trust me to create for you a happy dream? That terrible fatigue which is the mother of fatalism was creeping over her. She had done what she could. Vera dozed now among her pillows. Constance's hands were idle, her tired brain at the mercy of her friend. It would be a desperate business as she saw this battle, a battle in which she must meet and conquer the insidious counsel as well as the assertive will. Where, she wondered, were the light and strength which the cup might have shed upon her in this crisis? What was in her heart which blinded her now to that pure radiance, shut her ears to the cry of that love? But she knew, even whilst she complained, cried, prayed for succor, the reason of her loneliness. This was her hour, and she must meet it alone. She had been flung, as it were, into the crucible. The fire and the water must do their work. Her will must stand free, unswayed, between good and evil. Make its choice. The evil voice, disguised as friendship, cried in her ears. The divine voice was silent. It waited to pronounce judgment on the issue of the day. Yet she was not wholly solitary. She had at her hand an auxiliary, the strongest of auxiliaries, a weak thing for which she must fight. She and Vera stood together in the struggle. It was impossible to separate their interests. She saw it, saw them side by side, two human souls, poised amongst the powers of the air. She forgot the combat, forgot her own power of choice. Her whole consciousness, her whole will, was merged in that of the child, which stood at the very boundary of life and death. This was a mother's business, the moment of encounter, perhaps for which that mother had been made. Constance, at this hour, forgot all else. She did not want heaven or earth, life or love. She was gone, 
She was not there. She ceased to count. The floods burst. Love. Divine love. The selfless passion for imperfect things came upon her. She perceived herself to be greatly blessed in suffering, struggling for this, to give oneself for the unworthy. That, in this world of infinite gradation, was the only thing worth doing. Was it not the very pivot of creation, the secret of the grail? Mysteriously she found herself initiated into its fraternity, sharing from far off in that ecstasy of pain. Measured by this standard, her wretched little sacrifice, her baby struggles, seemed contemptible, but its light fell on them, helped them, lent them its own splendor. It gave them, as it were, a consecration. This circumstance did not make her happy, did nothing to smooth the path that she must tread. She did not want that, asked for no personal reward. She was on the right side of this eternal battle. She knew it, and that was enough. She understood now why all knightliness, all honor, the pure quest of perfection, had ever centered in the grail. She seized and adored and acknowledged it as the only thing that mattered, the folly, the quixotry, the humanity of the cross, its transcendent chivalry, its joy and anguish, shamed her. In her own quixotic fight with death, for the useless life which would but spoil her own, she drew near it, and there found her lost maternity, her selfless love. The sun rose, hard and frosty, upon Christmas Day. Its rays pierced red and level between the houses, and lit the chill streets where the lamps of the night offered to it the faint and evil opposition of artificial things. It shone into Constance's room, where there was no visible preparation for the honoring of the feast. The doctor had come and gone, leaving a verdict which obliterated all memory of times and seasons. Suspense was in the air. Vera's state was declared to be critical. The very forces of disease, it seemed, were on the side of the watcher. Works must be joined to faith if she were to be saved. Already the faint scent of drugs, the piteous makeshifts of a nursing which is conducted of necessity on the most frugal plan, had made their invasion. The place was littered with evidences of the battle of the night. Yet even here, in this unlikely corner, upon this shabby stage, the crib was set, the birth of love was honored, the light of the cup shone now, white and ardent, on a lodging which had become a shrine, wherein, under an image, the essence of its worship was preserved. It was companioned by that antique symbol of incarnate divinity, a weary, selfless mother, wholly concentrated on the well-being of her child. But as she brooded over her daughter, tended her, Constance knew that she had but entered on the first phase of a relentless struggle. Something, indeed, she had conquered. Once for all she had dismantled the hard citadel of self. But the watcher was not defeated. He remained at large, very active. He did not submit to her decision. He combated it still. 
in the spirit of that civilization which exterminates savage tribes for their own good, he declared war, the war of the wisest, on his friend. In the cold street, a belated singer, dragging his way back toward the grateful paganism of home, hurled at the irresponsive houses the first stanza of a Christmas hymn. Christians awake, salute the happy morn, where on the Saviour of the world was born. Rise to adore the mystery of love. Dear me, I did not know they understood it, said the watcher. End of chapter 20